I wanted to talk about uh, two topics tonight. Uh, the first is the bodhisattva path, and the second is uh, the question of Rigpa and nir Nirvana. So in talking about the bodhisattva path, I really want to uh, talk a little from my own experience. For 20 years, I was just involved in Theravada practice where the ideal that uh, gets talked about again and again and again is the arahant. And as you all know, that's the model of working uh, for one's own liberation in as speedy a time as possible. And part of the subtext that often gets joined to that motivation is getting off this dreadful wheel as quickly as possible, the wheel of samsara. And so the arhant model has built into it, if you take it you know, just a little bit off, has built into it an aversion to existence which can color one's approach to practice and approach to life. Then I started to become interested in uh, the Mahayana view of the path, and I picked up Shantideva's book, the Bodhi Bodhicharya Vatara, which uh, Rinpoche and Gerardo were talking about today, in, in English translated by Stephen Batchelor first as a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And I read through that, and I was quite inspired by it but it wasn't easy going. It's kind of a dense book, and it has a lot of hellfire and brimstone. So it's not an easy read, but I found it inspiring. But it didn't really, I have to say, it didn't really touch me that deeply. The main thing that it did is that it changed my marriage. Because here I was sort of practicing all these um, grandiose visions for saving all beings, and then I'd go back in my relationship and I'd have the same old selfish arguments that I'd been having for you know, 15 years. And it suddenly dawned on me, if I'm trying to make all beings uh, free of suffering, why do I continue to inflict suffering on the being that's closest to me? And I started looking more at my self-centered uh, desires in that context, and it helped to purify a few of them. <laughs> then I did a few retreats with Rinpoche early to mid-90s, and there was something about being in the retreat space and having my mind quiet and doing these chants several times a day, and especially coming to the a chant for bodhicitta and then the dedication of merit, uh, which we've been doing, and as you know, it ends, may we liberate migrators from the ocean of existence with its stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. And just hearing that again and again and again as an important motivation in the context of the retreat space started to shift something in me. And then also in that same retreat, I started to get more in touch with Rigpa as my deepest nature, nature of mind, realizing that this combination of, of emptiness and cognizance is, is not personal. So it's not particularly Guy's deepest nature. You know, or Justine's deepest nature. This is the deepest nature of all sentient beings. And I don't imagine that the way it's expressing in this mind-body system is very different from the way it's expressing in that one or that one or that one. And I started to see that the game of spiritual practice was not just about clearing the obscurations from this parcel of awareness. It was really about clearing the obscurations from awareness wherever it was happening. Because I had tapped into, through the con concept of Buddha nature, 
the common thread that uh, joins us all, or that you could say that we are all expressions of. And there was something about seeing on that level, seeing Buddha nature on that level, that broke down the distinction between self and other that I had been maintaining for my whole practice career. And that was a beautiful opening for me. And I came to feel that this aspiration of bodhicitta was really the the manifestation, or you might say the practice of, the understanding of egolessness. That the the teachings on anatta, or not-self, are basic to Theravada. They're gone into again and again and again and again. But this was a way of understanding the implication of it for practice and motivation. If there really is no separate self, then each person's liberation is as important as anyone else's. And that's actually one of the themes that Shantideva hits again and again, the equalizing of oneself with others. So that started to come through in a, a way that was meaningful for me. And it, it started to shift my practice motivation. But what I've noticed is that when I don't keep up that intention and reinforce through conscious reflection that bodhicitta aspiration, it falls back, it falls off again. And I often find the arhat path looking very attractive. (laughs) And just the concept of reaching the end uh, as soon as possible. This kind of deeper connection uh, that was revealed to me through the Buddha nature insight reminded me of a poem by uh, Rumi's teacher, the Shams of Tabriz. Rumi, of course, left hundreds, maybe thousands of poems. And his teacher was also a poet, but didn't leave so many poems behind. But Coleman Bark says that his teacher left one poem behind, at least. And this is that poem. It goes, I, you, he, she, we. In the garden of mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. I, you, he, she, we. In the garden of mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. I think the teaching on Buddha nature points to the fact that in the garden of clear seeing, these are not true distinctions either. So in some ways, the bodhicitta aspiration comes out of this understanding of the underlying unity that we all share and is just the manifestation of that insight. Now, having opened to the bodhicitta aspiration through these teachings, um, recall that there are two aspects of bodhicitta, relative and ultimate. The ultimate bodhicitta is Buddha nature, and it's something to be realized. The relative bodhicitta is this uh, somewhat fabricated or conceptual aspiration that we practice to develop over over time, which is something along the lines, everyone might have their own uh, formulation, something along the lines of practicing for our own realization in order to help uh, all beings. And this has caused me some dilemmas also along the way, because there are two pieces 
to this relative bodhicitta. One is practicing for our own enlightenment, the other is helping all beings. Which comes first? Or which is more important? Sorry? That's one way to say it. But in our, how, the question was, how would you divide them? But in our life, we make choices. And uh, different people make different choices. And actually, if we look at uh, the Tibetan tradition, I see different choices being made by leading teaching figures in the Tibetan tradition. There's this uh, stanza at the end of Shanti, toward the end of Shanti Deva's uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, that the Dalai Lama is very fond of. He associates with it. He quotes it again and again. I think it is his guiding principle. And it's a verse that says, For as long as space endures, and as long as living beings remain, may I too abide to dispel the misery of this world. And to me, this is an aspiration of the kind of bodhisattva who will postpone their own liberation in order to stay and serve those who are not yet enlightened. So I think this is one beautiful model of the bodhisattva, the kind of the notion that that person stays behind until all sentient beings have become enlightened first. But that's not the only model that you find in the Tibetan tradition. One of the greatest uh, Tibetan practitioners of all time is considered to be Milarepa. And Milarepa is considered to be someone who attained Buddhahood in one lifetime. So Milarepa went up into the mountains, meditated very arduously, and came to that uh, ultimate liberation, ultimate realization, within one lifetime. So did not, clearly did not postpone his own awakening. So I just want to say that as you play with the bodhisattva model, I think it's been helpful for me to understand that there's no one right way to do it. The combination of your altruistic intention and your uh, drive toward realization may play out differently than your neighbors. So there may be people whose altruistic intention is so strong, they want to go into uh, the inner city and do direct service work. And that can be coming out of a bodhisattva aspiration. There may be others whose bodhisattva uh, intention falls more on the practice side, and they may go into retreat for 20 years, 30 years, rest of their life. And that can be their expression. So someone who's working in the inner city, serving the, uh, those in real need, may look at the one in the cave and say, wow, that's really selfish. That they really should be doing more to help the world because it's in such a dreadful state. And the one who's up in the cave meditating may look at the person doing the direct service and say, how can they really hope to help others when their own mind stream isn't purified yet? There are still obscurations and they'll just be spreading them because they're not purified. How can we help another until we've really gotten to the root of our own suffering? So in these two attitudes, there could be judgment. And really what, just what I want to say about that is I don't think any of us can judge another person's path. 
I don't think it's possible. And the Buddha said something similar. There was some kind of gossip going on between different monks about judging the practice of other monks. And the Buddha came along and said, how do you know? And so how do you know where they're at in their attainment, what their motivation is, what their karma is, what their purification is? Only if you know that can you judge. He said, I know that, so I can judge. But you don't know that, so you can't judge. So really just a plea that as we look at the uh, inclusion of bodhicitta in our practice, we'd be really open that it manifests in a lot of different ways. There is no one right model for it. The person who's practicing in the cave can be doing it out of uh, very strong altruistic intention. And the person who's practicing uh, in service may have a lot of ego around it. So just a plea for understanding and non-judgment. And also just a message that each person's path unfolds differently. And so not to take any model as the way that you should be living. But we will each be called on to make these choices between outer work and inner work and to hold them both with this, uh, with this ultimate aspiration. So I think that was all I really wanted to say about uh, the bodhisattva path. But of course, that leads nicely into the next question, which is, what is the nature of realization? Another way to frame it is, what is the nature of the enlightened mind? And I want to talk about it from the viewpoint of uh, Rigpa and the viewpoint of Nirvana. I'll start with a quote from a classic Dzogchen text called Self-Liberation. The self-originated primordial awareness has not been created by anything. Amazing. It does not experience birth, nor does there exist a cause for its death. Amazing. So in most of the Buddhist tradition, if it's Uncreated, unborn, and undying, there's only one thing it can be, and that's nirvana. So the question is, is this basic awareness that we talked about last night the same as nirvana or not? Another way to say it is, is awareness an intrinsic part of the unconditioned? or not. As we talk about it tonight, it may sound like an intellectual pursuit or a philosophical pursuit, and I'm going to you know, certainly quote some texts along the line. But I think that what happens is when your practice gets close to this territory, these, these questions be, take on real urgency and real meaning for practitioners. And in this group, there are a number of people whose practice is in this ballpark, is currently or has been. And I think that uh, for some of us, these questions are of real urgency. So I just ask you to uh, listen with an open mind. Um, if it seems a little uh, too philosophical right now, let it go. But for some people, I think these are uh, questions of real urgency. One reason may be that in the Pali Suttas, it said that once one has realized the unconditioned and touched it directly, one has at most seven more lifetimes before full enlightenment. Basically, the full enlightenment is guaranteed 
in, at most, seven more lifetimes. That's kind of a nice insurance policy <laughs> or confirmation. So you can see why there can be a little bit of ego clinging around this. You know, wow, I had the ultimate experience where I wasn't there. I had it. <laughs> so there can be a lot of ownership around these moments because of the, the, the promise and the potential of it. In this talk, I want to just make a distinction. It's a little bit technical, but it, I think, will help in this crowd. As I understand, when nirvana is used in uh, Mahayana and uh, Vajrayana teachings, it points to the end of the path, uh, meaning Buddhahood. So connected with nirvana is the uh, quality of omniscience. I don't think in Mahayana or Vajrayana one talks about nirvana without associating it with the attainment of Buddhahood and the quality of omniscience. In the Theravadan teachings, we, we will often use nirvana as a synonym for the unconditioned, and any realization of it by a practitioner at any stage along the journey is considered to be a realization of nirvana or the unconditioned. So we use the two terms synonymously. It doesn't just refer to the very end or culmination of the path, it can be experienced along the way a number of times. So tonight, I want to use it primarily in the second sense, as a synonym for the unconditioned, which can be touched and countered by practitioners at any stage along the journey. Used in this sense, I think there are at least four different ways that nirvana is understood in the Buddhist tradition. The first is that it has no, um, no reality in the realm of being. There's no state as such that we can touch called nirvana. Nirvana is simply understood as the cessation of greed, aversion, and delusion. The complete and total absence of greed, aversion, and delusion of the three poisons. And any moment in which those three are totally absent, that's considered to be a, a moment of nirvana. And not a separate destination, could happen eyes open, eyes closed. And, there, and, and more, more to the point, there, the statement is there is no separate destination called nirvana. It's only a description of a state in which greed, aversion, and delusion are completely absent. So it's just a very purified state of mind, but it doesn't have any kind of being whatsoever. In the philosophy books, they say it has no ontological reality. Ontology is the study of being. So in this, the ontological reality of nirvana is denied. As I, as I uh, understand it, this is uh, pretty much the view of uh, the Madhyamakas, the followers of Nagarjuna. Because they cut, 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 cut over and over, they also cut out any beingness around nirvana. It's also close to some Theravadan views, but I actually don't know any individuals who hold it. But I've heard that it's out there in the Theravadan schools, so uh, also there. I just want to give a little example to illustrate you know, why this could be a, a reasonable point of view. When we've, as we've been introduced to uh, the practice of Dzogchen, we've been introduced to something uh, that's characterized by empty essence and natural uh, cognizance. Shorthand for this is empty knowing. 
So this is a short descriptive phrase for the practice we've been doing, rest in empty knowing. So we talk about it as a phrase, empty knowing. It's a verb, right? Empty knowing is kind of an activity, isn't it? Now, what happens when we give the name Rigpa to that activity? When we put it as a noun, all of a sudden the mind takes it as, tends to take it as a thing. So just by turning a verb into a noun, we tend to unconsciously ascribe an ontological reality to it. So similarly with Nibbana. It could just be, you know, exhausting greed, hatred, and delusion. But once we assign a noun to it, it could take on ontological reality. So this is the viewpoint of the first school on Nibbana. Okay, second um, definition or understanding of it is that it, it is accorded some ontological reality. It's actually considered not to exist, but not not to exist. So it's beyond both existence and non-existence, but because its existence is not denied, it has some meaning in the realm of being. It's proper to call it a noun. The Buddha called it a dhamma. Dhamma is usually translated by a thing. But it's understood in this view to be a state of cessation, again, as I understand it, where the four mental aggregates cease. That means that when one realizes Nibbana, there is no feeling, no perception, no mental formations, and no consciousness. The body remains. That's good. The yogi's body does not disappear when they enter Nibbana. But of course, because consciousness is not there, there's no experience of the body. But the body, the form, is actually still there. So the key thing is it's a state with no sense data and no, no consciousness, no awareness functioning. This is the view of a number of the schools of Burma and Sri Lanka, particularly those that are, uh, really take their uh, direction from the Abhidhamma and the Vasudhimaga. I don't know that this is explicitly claimed in the Abhidhamma, but I believe it is pointed uh, to in the Vasudhimaga. These two often go together. The Abhidhamma and the Vasudhimaga people tend to hang out together. But there is, the, there is the admission that there's some kind of dimension here that can be uh, realized, that can be touched. But it's entirely separate from ordinary sense reality. The understanding is that if you have your eyes open and you're experiencing sense data, you can't touch this thing. It's somewhere else. It's a transcendent kind of thing and it can't be, it can't coexist with sense consciousness. So when it is touched, all sense contact goes away, and even consciousness goes away. So how does the yogi describe it, or um, experience it, or realize it? I think basically what happens is that as one emerges from this temporary realization, some little trace of memory might carry over. That in some ways one, in a way, has a feeling of what happened the moment before. Just some lingering aroma. And that's as close as one can come to a description. So this is very much an altered state. And because it's such an empty state, words really 
uh, can't, can't come close to it. Words fail when we try to describe this state. It's often talked about as a state of cessation. When you hear the word cessation in uh, Vasudhimaga uh, uh, terms, this is usually what's being pointed to because the four mental aggregates have stopped. The third understanding or description of nirvana is getting, you see, each of these gets a little more liberal. I hope you're getting that sense. The third one is a little more liberal. And it is a state where uh, feeling, perception, and formations uh, cease. So these three mental aggregates are absent. The five senses cease. So there's no sight, sound, smell, taste, touch present. But some consciousness may continue. Consciousness may continue. And this is the way, or awareness, you could say awareness, this is the way that enlightenment is commonly described in the Thai forest tradition. So what is that awareness aware of? Different people describe it differently. Some say it's just aware of itself. Some say that uh, there's just awareness. Some say that it's aware of the unconditioned. But they're all pointing to a state where basically the only element present is some kind of knowing and something unconditioned. Ajahn Mahabua has been uh, quite explicit with his experience of this. He's a Thai forest master who's still living, and quite old now. He was a student of Ajahn Man, one of the great Thai forest masters of the last hundred years. He ordained as a monk when he was relatively young, and he said that when he got to his 10th rains retreat, this is the three-month period where the monks don't go out, usually an intensified period of meditation, he started to sit up all night. Every night during the rains retreat, he would sit all night long without moving. That's strong motivation. And he said that uh, it was so painful what he went through, his body was just racked by pain going through this practice, that he lost his fear of death because he felt that nothing could ever again be as painful as what he had gone through sitting up all night, every night. And then he said that when he finished this practice, his mind was like a rock, that he had become you know, so concentrated through his determination, his mind was absolutely immovable. Concentration was just steady, like a rock. And he said then he enjoyed that so much, the piece of it, he was stuck there for five years. <laughs> Imagine if he'd had the pointing out instructions. But no Dzogchen masters. So he said he started to realize after a while, his teacher helped him realize that he was stuck in that concentration. And then he turned to mindfulness and wisdom. And he, he calls them a pair, satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom. And he said, at that point, things went easily because my concentration was fully prepared, very prepared. But he said what he turned to was investigating four elements, desire and non-desire, suffering and ease. And he saw that these four states kept cycling 
Desire, absence of desire. Suffering, ease. It just kept circling so that he saw that none of them was it because they were all changing. So none of them was what he was looking for. And he said he was interested in those because he was ignorant of the mind's own nature. That's a pointing out. I was ignorant of the mind's own nature. So he said he let go of everything but mindfulness and wisdom. This is, in in Thai forest terms, this is a looking back at the mind's own nature, mindfulness and wisdom. And then he said that the mind's own nature became impartial and impassive, not tending to anything. Isn't this an interesting pointing? When we turn to nature of mind, the instruction is don't fasten on any phenomena. It's another way of saying don't tend to anything. Stay in the mind's own nature. So that's what Mahabhuva did. And he said, at that moment, the cosmos in the mind over which ignorance held sway trembled and quaked. Ignorance was thrown down from its throne on the heart. In its place, the pure mind appeared. At the same moment that ignorance was toppled and eradicated through the power of mindfulness and wisdom. When a Thai forest monk says that ignorance was eradicated, this is a declaration of arhantship. The uprooting of ignorance is the end of suffering, the attainment of arhantship. So he said the attainment of arhantship came when uh, the pure mind appeared through the power of mindfulness and wisdom. So this is typical of the Thai forest tradition the quality of awareness being central to the enlightenment process. Then the fourth description, I would say, is basically the description we've been getting over these days of the uh, unchanging nature of mind, as I read in that opening quote from Self-Liberation. The self-originated primordial awareness that has not been created by anything, does not experience birth, and does not die. One of the nice things about this view is that we can experience uh, some aspect of this reality with eyes open, some aspect of this reality without a huge amount of concentration, some aspect of this reality with all the senses open and functioning and going about our daily life. But we understand that this nature is, uh, is the deathless. So this is the fourth, the fourth view. So I got really interested in the disagreements between these schools and to see if I could um, reconcile them or come to my own understanding. And uh, the answer I came up with is that um, I don't know. (laughs) So that's the main opinion I hold at this point. (laughs) I don't know. And uh, I would love, you know, someday for a teacher to come along who's practiced in all these four ways (laughs) in depth and can, can tell us from direct experience. 
Um, so far, I haven't met that person. So I don't know. But I still got interested in the investigation. So another way to say it is, if awareness is an intrinsic part of the mind, then when an enlightened being dies, that awareness should somehow continue. If the awareness ends at death, then that's saying it's somehow not intrinsic. Or it's, it, it doesn't fit this description of being beyond birth and death. It would somehow arise with the body and die with the body. But if awareness is intrinsic, it should, um, it should exist after death. So I took a look at uh, the texts that I have the most trust in, which are the Pali Suttas, and to see if I could find any clues, any guidance from them. And it's very interesting because the Buddha was often asked this question, what happens to the enlightened being after death? Does that person exist? The Buddha said, you can't say that. And they said, well, does the person not exist? He said, you can't say that. Do they both exist and not exist? Well, you can't say that. Do they neither exist nor not exist? You can't say that. So he would not say in any of those four cases what happened. But there are some other kind of interesting clues. You know, clearly the physical aggregate is gone. Then what about consciousness? So at one point in the text, he pretty much says that after an arhat dies, there's no consciousness. Well, that seems to seal the argument for uh, at least description number one or two. No consciousness after death, therefore it's not an intrinsic part. But that's not the end of the story. Because in other passages, he says something different. There's a case where a bhikkhu was uh, practicing very seriously during the Buddha's lifetime and attained what's called temporary liberation of mind. And there are many ways to do that. It's a state where the mind is really released from the defilements temporarily. But every time he would touch it, he would also fall out of it. Touch it, be delivered, fall out of it, back to defilements. Touch it, fall out of it, back to defilements. And he got so discouraged by this that he said, I can't, I can't do it. I'm going to take my life. And in the jargon of the suttas, uh, it said that bhikkhu used the knife. That's the way it said. So the bhikkhu took his own life. And then the Buddha was talking with a, a group of other uh, practitioners and said, uh, uh, bhikkhus, do you see that dark swirling cloud in the distance? That smoky mass that's moving through the air? He said, that bhikkhus is Mara, searching for the consciousness of the bhikkhu who took his life, the bhikkhu Godika. He said, but Mara is not going to find that consciousness because that bhikkhu's consciousness is unestablished. The reason is that before he used the knife, the bhikkhu attained final liberation. And his consciousness is now unestablished. So it's very interesting terminology because the Buddha did not say he has no con the consciousness is gone. He said his consciousness is now unestablished. Then what does that mean? 
So there's another sutta where the Buddha describes what it means that a consciousness is unestablished. And this part I'd like to read to you from the text. This is an analogy for the consciousness that is unestablished. Suppose, bhikkhus, there was a house with a peaked roof, with windows on the northern, southern, and eastern sides. When the sun rises and a beam of light enters through a window, where would it become established? And a bhikkhu replies, on the western wall, venerable sir. So, sun rises in the east, comes through the window, where does that sunlight become established? On the western wall. Okay. And the Buddha says, um, if there were no western wall, where would it become established? So knock down this wall, remove the white taratanka first. Where would the sunlight become established? And the bhikkhu says, on the earth, venerable sir. And if there were no earth, the Buddha said, where would it become established? On the water, venerable sir. Maybe there's a lake or something there. If there were no water, where would it become established? It would not become established anywhere, venerable sir. So too, bhikkhus, if there is no nutriment for consciousness, consciousness does not become established there and come to growth. Where consciousness does not become established and come to growth, I say, that is without sorrow, anguish, and despair. Does this analogy sound familiar? (laughs) Sunlight not falling anywhere? (laughs) Yay. (laughs) You remembered. What's the reference to John? Nikaya, Nidana 12, Sutta 64. So the analogy that I talked about last night about the sunlight falling on the media, the sunlight pervading empty space and then falling on the meteorite actually came to me before I'd heard of this sutta. (laughs) So, you know, there's the Buddha and then there's Guy Armstrong. (laughs) That's a joke. But I found it very interesting that the unestablished consciousness, which is used for the arhat after death, is compared to sunlight that doesn't land anywhere. So to me, not having found any passage more authoritative, to me it says that the suttas support the view of three and four. And so that's basically my read now of the Pali Canon that I am more inclined to believe they support the view of three and four than of one and two. And that's why I said early in the first or second evening's talk that um, although there have been many splits in the schools of Buddhism over the centuries, over the millennia, I feel that the original Pali texts are not in conflict with any of them. Not in conflict with any of them. So I feel from a Dzogchen point of view, one can rely on these texts. From a Theravadan point of view, one can rely on these texts. From a Mahayana point of view, one can rely on these texts. And the conflicts come in when later commentators and philosophers and practitioners try to put more interpretation on here than 
apparently the Buddha said at that time. So I found that I found that very encouraging. And that's basically the personal opinion that I hold now. Everybody's probably going to have some opinion. This is the opinion I've come to about it. Now, somebody asked me just before uh, the talk tonight if I'd ever just asked Rinpoche what the relation was between Rigpa and Nirvana, and I did. I asked him in a retreat uh, several years ago. I asked him if they were the same thing. And this is where the distinction, I think, is important. In Tibetan terminology, nirvana is used to describe someone who has reached the level of Buddhahood. So what he did is, he took that mala, that amber mala that he uh, wears, and he separated two beads, and he showed me the string. And he said, uh, uh, this little bit of string is like seeing Rigpa. He said, when all the beads are cleared, off, you see the whole string, that's like seeing nirvana. So nirvana is much greater, and I think that's the factor of omniscience that he's talking about. He said, but the essence of nirvana and the essence of rigpa are the same. Same string, but you're just not seeing the whole thing. So that is, as I understand it, uh, the Dzogchen understanding. And then he went on to say, you know, we don't talk about nirvana for practitioners like here. He said, we only talk about nirvana for Dzogchen yogis who are in mountain retreat and stabilized in Rigpa night and day. (laughs) So, it's a high standard. The other thing I want to say, and and, um, comes from a little bit personal experience, a little bit reflection, is that I I believe, and I haven't checked this out with Rinpoche, it'd be an interesting thing to ask him, that as our Rigpa practice deepens, clarifies, the view gets purified and developed as we go, that at some point it's possible to touch that nirvanic nature in such a direct way that you absolutely know you've touched the unconditioned. So that there's no doubt anymore. You know, is this conditioned? Is it unconditioned? Is awareness an intrinsic part? Is it not? That one knows one has touched something unconditioned and if awareness is a part of that. That's my understanding, but I don't know that that's the case. It's my intuition. So once we, once we take that, we see this connection between the pure state of awareness, could be called Rigpa or empty knowing, relatively free from the three poisons, then we see that that becomes the path. And it's interesting because in Dzogchen terminology, they're very clear about ground, path, and fruition all being about the same thing. I thought this was like a a radical concept when I heard it. Then I came across this line also from the Samyutta Nikaya, which says that the Eightfold Path has the deathless as its ground and goal. The Eightfold Path has the deathless as its ground and goal. It's the same statement. The path is based on the ground and fruition. It's the same statement. And that ground is the deathless. The path has the deathless as its ground and goal. So essentially what I understand we're doing as we're practicing the nature of mind is that we are putting ourselves in the unconditioned as best we're able. 
as close as each of us knows what the unconditioned nature is, we put our mind there over and over again and let it stay there as long as it will stay. And when it slips out, we put it there again as best we can. So the whole path becomes essentially the imitation of of nirvana. As best we can imitate it. We imitate nirvana in each new moment. And so however big or little a piece of nirvana is apparent to us, that's the nirvana we have for right now. This is pointed to by a a pamphlet from one of my teachers in Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, wrote a little pamphlet called Nibbana for Everyone. (laughs) And his whole purpose was to take it out of the abstract realm where it was only going to be accessible to, you know, one-tenth of one percent of all meditators and make it really available for anyone who had the sincere interest through this process of looking into the nature, of knowing when the three poisons are weak and the purity of the emptiness and the knowing together. So that's pretty much what I wanted to uh, talk about tonight and see if there are any questions. Absolutely. Ajahn Buddhadasa is also in the Thai forest tradition. The comment was that Ajahn Buddhadasa seemed to be saying the same thing about emptiness and knowing. It's very clear. He makes it absolutely explicit. He has a beautiful little book called Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, where he says that um, the real truth of things is emptiness, but because it has knowing, uh, we call it satipanya. So the equation of emptiness with satipanya is very explicit for him. And you'll find this throughout the Thai forest tradition. You can find it in Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mahabua, um, Ajahn Buddhadasa, and Ajahn Jumnian. Ajahn Jumnian's coming here, I think, at the end of this month. He's a living Thai forest master. And uh, we were talking with him. He said, the best way to practice mahasati, great awareness, great mindfulness, is to rest in the pure space of knowing. And then somebody asked him, Oh, but isn't, isn't that conditioned? Because it's consciousness. You know, isn't, con- isn't consciousness conditioned, impermanent? And he said, well, consciousness actually has two aspects. One conditioned, one unconditioned. That's a nice way to see it, too, that consciousness is kind of what links to the unconditioned, or awareness is the link between ordinary reality and the unconditioned. So he said it very explicitly, and you'll find that again and again in the Thai forest. Teachers? The Burmese, the comment is the Burmese tradition uh, holds the opposite view, and that's true. And again, you know, influenced strongly by Abhidhamma and Vasudhimaga. Tina. comment is that it could be um, a factor of what kind of practice people have done, whether they've done jhana or not, might lead to different experiences. Certainly a possibility. Could be the instruction they've been given. 
and what their teachers told them to expect. It's interesting because the, I think the uh, spiritual model we've given to some extent will shape our experience. In other words, meditators will experience what teachers tell them to look for. And so it could be that effect also. Now, one, one modern teacher had a really interesting interpretation of these different levels. Uh, let's say Dzogchen practice is kind of realizing nirvana with eyes open. Thai forest tradition is realizing it with eyes closed, just pure awareness. And the Burmese style is experiencing it with no consciousness, but just the kind of emptiness of it. And he compared it to Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya, Dharmakaya. Nirmanakaya being the realm of the manifest, Sambhogakaya being the kind of luminous, immaterial nature, which is connected with cognizance, and Dharmakaya being the realm of, of empty, the empty aspect of reality. In, you know, in reality, all three kayas are, are united, but we can look at different aspects of reality through one or the other of these descriptions. So he was saying that the different traditions were touching nirvana through its three aspects of the three kayas. That's an interesting way to look at it. Okay. Yeah. Natural clarity either way. Yeah. Thanks. Yes. The first one? The first one I mentioned was a state of um where, where there's no kind of being to nirvana, but it's just the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. Yeah. Yes. Sure. The question is about the use of the term samadhi. seems to be used in different ways. Uh, the way I understand it is that it's um, pretty similar between uh, the Theravadan and the Tibetan system, and that it basically, it, it usually translated by concentration. So it's one of the path factors. Uh, I believe it's one of the paramis in the uh, Mahayana list of the paramis, and it's the quality of mind that can come to single-pointedness. Um, and, uh, and through that, you know, get stability, strength and stability. So it's often closely associated with, with shamatha. The, the practice of shamatha develops the mental factor of samadhi. And in the Theravada tradition, we often do develop the quality of samadhi to these levels called absorptions or jhana. Uh, but that's just one end of the spectrum of samadhi. And I think that in the Eightfold Path, when it's summed up, the Buddha talked about the three parts of the path being uh, sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila, uh, or shila in Sanskrit, ethical conduct. 
samadhi, referring to the, actually the meditation portion, and uh, panya or prajna for the wisdom portion. So it's interesting, when he talked about the meditation portion, the word he used to sum it up was samadhi. So in that sense, samadhi is almost u- used as a synonym for meditation, you know, I think, in the whole Buddhist, uh, Buddhist tradition. Question is, can I talk about the rainbow body as being the final end of the Rigpa practice? And I, uh, from direct experience, uh, not yet. Uh, I'll just say a little of, of what I've read, and that is that when a great Dzogchen practitioner has reached the culmination of the practice, the teaching is that when they die, all their physical form goes away and turns into uh, what's called rainbow body, totally insubstantial body, and all they leave behind are their hair and fingernails. And that's considered the way to tell whether a Dzogchen practitioner has reached the absolute peak of what the practice offers. I think Rinpoche mentioned today with that story of the king who started off the tantras, that the king and his 500 queens all attained rainbow body. So that's, it's used in the text as the, the culmination of the practice, but uh, there are many stories that attest to it. Many stories. I think Namkai Norbu has a story of having gone in after one great master had passed away and verified that only you know, the fingernails and hair were found uh, in, the, in the room. So it's considered achievable today, and there are people still considered to be achieving it today. Aim very high. Yeah. Phil? I'm curious, in the second and third um, nirvanas, you talked about, you know, talked about the, um, the sense perceptions and consciousness reading. Mm-hmm. How do they function in a dual reality until they die? Oh, okay. Question is about when um, I described the second and third kinds of nirvana with the consciousnesses being absent, uh, how, then how does a person function if the senses aren't functioning? And in these traditions, both Burmese and Thai, it's only considered that the meditator goes into that for a limited period of time. So contacts the unconditioned directly for that limited period. That limited contact with the unconditioned is sufficient to uproot the defilements. So the defilements go out of the mind, then uh, the uh, contact with the unconditioned ceases, the consciousness and all the senses return, and then one continues to function in the world, but without any defilements left in the mind. Yeah, thank goodness. Jim? comment is that uh, the rainbow body can still be part of the bodhisattva path because a being can continue to benefit other beings from that uh, Sambhogakaya level. This is true. It's all part of the magic and mystery and wonder of Tibetan Buddhism. Not only that, but as I understand it, once one has attained Buddhahood, 
and one, uh, the body dies, that the imprint of the enlightened consciousness is left in the Dharmakaya realm. And then it's possible for the consci- what consciousness is left in the Dharmakaya realm to send out emanations that are reborn in human form or other form and can benefit beings in that way. So even a fully enlightened Buddha can still, uh, as, if you like, reappear to benefit beings. <laughs> Great mysteries. Great mysteries. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Nona? Very interesting. question is about the bhikkhu who used the knife. Um, is consciousness being used synonymously with awareness? Well, again, in the Pali text, there's no word that gets translated by awareness. So there's just consciousness. But it is usually associated with objects. So I think the pointing here is that something continues, but because there are no objects to pick up on, it is unestablished. So we could use it as synonymous with awareness. It certainly points to consciousness, because the question is, uh, isn't in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, isn't there a pointing to awareness? And uh, there's certainly a pointing to consciousness in the fourth foundation through um, the five aggregates. Uh, I can't remember how the six sense bases are worded, but certainly through the five aggregates, consciousness is one of the five aggregates it's pointed to. So mindfulness of consciousness is included in classical Theravadan teachings. But it doesn't point to consciousness. David? question is about samadhi and the translation as concentration. It's a little misleading because when we use the word concentration in English, we usually mean that we're narrowing the attention down. You know, I want to concentrate on my reading. Don't distract me with that television noise. But the sense of samadhi doesn't have that exclusive connotation at all. 
the sense of, is that the mind is concentrated in the sense of coming together. The, en- the mind stuff is concentrated, or the mind energy is concentrated by letting go of distraction. Distraction is what robs the mind of energy. When we let go of distraction, the mind regains its original strength and energy and stability. And so it's concentrated in the sense of being unified, being joined. And unification of mind is the best translation I can think of. Another way it's sometimes talked about is one-pointed. But again, you don't want to think of it as necessarily one-pointed in a narrow way. And I like the way Ajahn Sumedho describes it. He's a Theravadan monk. He says that it's the one point that includes everything. That lends very well to our practice here. What's the one point that includes everything? The present moment, empty knowing. So samadhi goes very well with that sense of empty knowing. And just a PS that um, the more you develop the quality of samadhi through whatever practice you do, whether it's, it does develop through Rigpa practice, as you let go of distractions, samadhi develops in a very natural and unforced way, or whether you do it through shamatha with you know, single-pointed, uh, exclusive focus, you will find a great benefit when you turn to mind, mind essence because the stability that you've developed through the shamatha practice will be there when you touch the nature of mind and it will sustain the Rigpa longer. Right. That's basically true. The ability to sustain the attention in the present moment. And Rinpoche has been saying something really similar, both about shamatha and about, uh, about Rigpa practice. Yeah. Take a, one last question. Bonnie? The question is, in the Dzogchen tradition, are shamatha and vipassana considered preliminary practices? I think that uh, one is strongly encouraged. Traditionally, it was an absolute requirement to do the formal preliminary practices of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And then, and also encouraged to do different styles of shamatha. And my understanding is that Dzogchen is only one way to approach vipassana, so that there are other approaches to vipassana also. So I think it, traditionally meditators did a number of those before being uh, allowed into the quite secret teachings of, of Dzogchen. Okay, this is a good place to stop.
This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 12, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.